Welcome to Banking in the Shadows, a podcast that shines a spotlight on the worlds of financial and cybercrime, how it impacts the global financial system, and the people, organizations, and agencies tasked with fighting it. Hi, I'm Anita Horser, Europe Editor at The Banker. The recent furore surrounding former UKIP leader Nigel Farage, whose bank account at the prestigious private bank Coots was closed, highlighted the plight of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of customers, less high profile than Mr Farage, that suddenly find themselves without access to banking services. The Farage affair cost NatWest and Coots CEOs their jobs. But does it highlight a much bigger problem at the heart of banking? And what role does the increasing use of AI and other software tools for fighting fraud play in the debanking story? To help me answer these questions, I'm joined by Jeremy Asher, a consultancy regulatory solicitor at Setford's, who sees a high number of bank account closures in his practice every day. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Anita, and thanks for having me on your podcast. So, Jeremy, perhaps a good place to start is to get an idea of the type of people who come to you who've had their accounts closed by banks unexpectedly or for no apparent reason. How do these account closures impact people? I see everybody from every single possible walk of life, from multimillionaire business owners to uh, accountants, professionals who work in the banking and finance sectors, right the way through to students, uh, whether that's people who are 15 years old at school who've been money muled or duped into getting involved with money muling uh, or I see single parent mothers who've given their bank accounts away. I've got pensioners uh, on my books. I've got just about every single per- demographic you can think of. If this, this problem is not exclusive to a particular group, everybody can lose their bank accounts if they uh, are unlucky. And the problem that I see is what once uh, a fraud mark has been loaded against an individual, then most of the time, the vast majority of the time, uh, a house of cards starts to pull and they lose their entire lines of banking. They can't get credit facilities. Uh, they can't uh, even rent a house, they can't get a mortgage. Uh, and if you're in a professional service uh, position within financial services, it is likely you will lose your job on the spot and you won't get another job within that sector. So it is a, a massive problem for people. And do you think that the sort of case of Nigel, Nigel Farage has shone a light on this problem? Yes, I do. Um, I mean, Nigel Farage has come at this from a different angle, uh, but I was very grateful that he did raise the publicity. Uh, The PEPS issue is one side of this, but I am seeing huge numbers, and I mean a couple of hundred inquiries a month of people who have had their bank accounts closed, and that has been consistent since lockdown. So I am seeing literally thousands of people affected by this, and... 
uh, it's a much bigger problem than, than the PEPs issue because this is affecting people's everyday ability to operate, to run their businesses, um, to be economically valuable to the nation. And just to be clear, PEPs is politically exposed persons, and I think we're going to talk about that yeah. later in the show. But but just on that, is there a, any specific trend that you're seeing amongst the people that you're representing as to why their accounts may have been closed by banks? I see a lot of youngsters who have uh, either wittingly or unwittingly got involved in money muling. Uh, that is money laundering. I see a lot of people who have fallen victim to fraudulent mortgage brokers, um, a, a lot of application frauds. Uh, I see a lot of uh, people who can't explain how payments have entered their accounts, and that includes business people. Uh, they, they're sort of the constants uh, that I see, really. And in a lot of these cases, what, what sort of tends to happen? Does the bank account suddenly get closed and, and no reason given? Exactly that. Uh, or they are declined an application for credit uh, and they're told we can't give you a reason why. And how successful have you been in, in sort of representing these individuals and allowing them to open bank accounts again? Of the cases that I challenge uh, and bearing in mind, uh, a lot of this is, there's a systemic problem here because the markers can last for six years and people might go four or five years before realizing they've got one, by which time they might have dropped the phone down the loo or moved house or gone through their papers and, you know, burnt everything because they wanted to clean the house and didn't think there's anything of note there they might have lost the evidence that could have otherwise proved their innocence. And that's the key here. They have to prove that they are innocent of wrongdoing. So the bank is certain of that. So there's, I see a huge number of people who I simply can't help because they've lost their evidence. So of those that I can help, um, we challenge the banks uh, or the organizations loading the markers first. Um, and I win about 75% of those challenges, bearing in mind that I'm filtering through and I'm only going to take on a case where I think there's a reasonable prospect of success in the first instance. I just want to sort of look at some of the figures that were sort of being published at the time of the Nigel Farage case. And there was some FCA data suggesting there were more than 343,000 account closures last year in the UK. The FCA figures, are, do you think they're just the tip of the iceberg because they only relate to accounts closed due to concerns over financial crime? I think those figures are probably likely to be fairly accurate. Um, bearing in mind that individuals these days, are, are particularly young people, I don't know why, but they, they tend to like to have a, a number of bank accounts. So quite frequently, I see several markers are on a report from different financial institutions. So what we haven't been able to ascertain is the number of actual individuals affected. Um, but most people, they will only have the one marker on a report, but some may have several, uh, two, three, four, uh, most I've seen is about nine, but that was extremely rare. And also I think Mr. Farage put in an information request 
which found that 90,000 people were reported as being a politically exposed person. And Oots, in the case of Mr Farage, had expressed concerns about his political views and reputational risks that he posed to the bank. What do you think is going on here um, with the PEPs regime? Do you feel that perhaps it's being misused or misinterpreted by banks? I think it is a, a degree of misinterpretation by the banks and also a, a, a huge dose of being risk averse. Um, and we will come on to a discussion about what PEPs are later. But at the end of the day, uh, it's an organisation can make a decision of whether or not to accept a risk. Uh, you obviously mitigate that risk in some way. Uh, when I was reading about what happened to Mr Farage's account, it appeared that uh, there were, if you like, um, automated processes in AI that came up with this is an unacceptable risk and a decision was made at a high level that that risk couldn't be mitigated. What I am seeing is, uh, or what I believe to see, is that um, organisations are taking the view that um, that risk is unacceptable and therefore it's a complete no whereas they're not actually asking the question, does this person really pose a risk to us as a business or the banking community? Um, so I, I think I think there's a, a, a potentially there's a, a degree of the banks being overly risk averse now and taking it, if you like, a, a, a computer generated decision rather than looking at the wider picture. Do you think that's a resource issue? The fintechs and the challenges are more likely, I think, to use automated processes and assumptions than the bigger banks that have got big anti-fraud teams in place. And, and that creates a danger because you're, you're seeing decisions made based on very little evidence. So is this more of a problem in terms of bank account closures in your experience with challenger banks than with, you know, your traditional high street bank? Proportionately, yes. Um, I mean, I, as you might expect, the big five, are they close more than any other because they've got more accounts. But um, I, I see more uh, work through the challenger banks, really, as a proportion than you would expect. Um, uh, I, I think also we've got, uh, there's an additional problem with the challenger banks because a lot of young people don't like the old banks. You know, I've had this conversation with 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 young people and I've asked them, why have you gone to Starling or, or Monzo or something like that or Revolut? And they said, well, we don't trust the big banks. Um, you know, they know about HSBC and NatWest and Barclays and all the others being fined huge amounts of money. They, they've heard of all those those stories and they, they're looking outside the box but we're, they're walking into organizations that don't have the resources to investigate cases properly and of course you're getting a lot more young people using those young people are more susceptible to getting involved or be duped into becoming money mules and so the problem then exacerbates And I want to get a better understanding of what we mean by markers. Um, 
because you were the, one of the first lawyers to specialize in the removal of CFAS and other markers, which are loaded by banks and, and sort of other financial institutions when customers are wrongly suspected of committing fraud and other financial crimes. And you've also appealed such cases to the financial ombudsman and the business banking resolution service in court. What is CFAS markers? Jeremy? Uh, CIFAS is an organization that um, it's the credit industry fraud awareness system um, and it, it basically is a database that the banks uh, pay into and it uh, flags uh, banks load into that system the, the database those people that they suspect of uh, committing a, a financial crime and there are various categories within uh, those uh, that database and in, with CIFAS they give them uh, a coded description of the activity um, and then they load those markers against that person uh, against their credit file. Now unless you're a victim of fraud you won't have any idea about them. They hide behind your credit rating. They, uh, so but, but these markers last six years. Um, and for six years, you can go along blissfully unaware that you've got one of these things, potentially. But if your car breaks down and you need a new car and you suddenly go for car finance and have it rejected, then you start thinking, what's going on here? Um, the other databases work in a different way. Uh, National Hunter isn't actually a database. It is uh, a system that there's all sorts of tools and organizations in the background that assist banks to decide on risk and, and, and flag transactions. Um, and they all they report those mainly within in relation to applications for finance, International Hunter and National Hunter flags them up. Um, interestingly, there's no system in National Hunter for it to report where somebody is a victim, um, so, which is, I find extraordinary. Synetic Solutions um, is a very light touch. Again, there's any discrepancy in your data with an application, you'll get marked to uh, Synetics. And what I'm finding is that some banks are actually loading to all three, CIFAS, National Hunter and Synetics, on the same transaction. And they might be prepared to remove one, but they might refuse to remove others. But Synetics and National Hunter don't have transparent systems. They don't have an, a, a, an arbitration system you can go to. Uh, so they're very, very difficult to overturn. CIFAS is particularly difficult to overturn. I had some data, a client of mine did a, um, asked her MP to uh, get some data out of CIFAS, which was extremely interesting. And it transpired that CIFAS um, have only, um, they, they basically remove something like one out of eight uh, appeals to it. That's all. Because CIFAS will only look at whether or not the bank has followed the rules correctly and loaded the marker in accordance with the rules. They don't look at, was this person actually innocent of wrongdoing? And I've actually overturned 
CIFAS negative decisions through the Ombudsman before now. So um, that that is the problem. It is it really is a regulatory minefield, and you've got to know your way around it to understand how best to challenge these cases when you when you can. Because part of my role is to try and look at areas where banks have made errors and let's face it banks are manned by human beings there is going to be human error in there at some point and where there's human error then i i try to find that and also i look at the systems that they use and uh, look at the evidence that i'm able to provide uh, from the client and, and build a case and all of those sort of databases or systems do lead to account closures. Yeah, they do. And the difficulty then is that if you then try to apply for another account, some organisations will load a marker if they see another marker. And I've seen this several times, particularly with two organisations. Um, so if they see a sidepass marker, they'll load a synetics marker straight away. So does that suggest that sort of innocent innocent people are being accused of wrongdoing because a machine or multiple machines yeah. or databases exactly. say they look suspicious? Yes, exactly that. And you know, I've got I've got a case at the moment where we had uh, we overturned a CIFAS marker, but it transpired that other markers had been loaded as a result of that CIFAS marker, and we're having to try to prove his innocence all over again. In, with other organizations to say look come on let the guy off the hook you know he was innocent the original marker that caused all this is gone um that that is a real issue a real problem so what these things are not looking at is wherever it's just and fair there's no just and fair test in all this the test is, has the bank acted reasonably in loading the marker? And that test is is moving away from a criminal standard to a civil standard. So on a balance of probabilities rather than is there a reason or, you know, is there, can we prove this beyond doubt? And that that's, I think, going to cause even more problems in the future. And then on top of that, we have obviously AI, artificial yeah. intelligence, which we know a lot of banks are using in fraud and financial crime. What sort of additional complexities do you think that will bring to debanking? I think all sorts of problems. And I can understand why the banks are using AI automated processes. And, and let's not beat around the bush. Fraud markers are important. They do flag criminal activity. They do catch criminals and vast numbers of them. My problem is that these things are like a dragnet and occasionally they're going to fish out a dolphin. And there's a great injustice to genuinely innocent people in all this. So, um, so far as going back to your question is concerned, AI uh there's all sorts of problems coming over the hill here the 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 measures that the anti-fraud specialists use will eventually find their way into the hands of fraudsters 
So I know there's a huge amount of concern about AI generated voice technology, video technology, uh, it being used to scam people into believing that they're dealing with a, you know, a genuine human being. You reverse that and ask a bank to investigate a case and it comes up against a AI driven fraud. How is it going to be able to differentiate between AI and genuine people? So there's an added complexity that's coming over the hill there. Let's move on, because not only do we have the markers as an issue, but we've also got PEPs. And I think the Farage case, again, also highlighted some issues with the politically exposed persons regime, which has prompted the UK's Financial Conduct Authority to launch an investigation into rules around banking high-risk customers. Jeremy, can you sort of gaze into your crystal ball and maybe tell us what you think that review is likely to find? Oh dear, no idea. I think that it might help if we sort of talk about how what what a PEP is. I mean, a PEP doesn't just have to be a government minister, or you know, a, a serious uh, high-profile politician or somebody like that. They can be uh, diplomatic staff, ambassadors, and 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 the like, or senior members of the armed forces. They can uh, work within you know high-level. Uh, uh, in, in courts or judicial systems where they can, if you like, uh, influence policy. Um, they can be managers of state-owned corporations. Um, and But it doesn't just affect the officers, it affects their, their children as well and their family members um, and any sort of close business associates. So... Um, I think there's a. I think what this review might find is that actually, there aren't so many what you would term politically exposed people of power and influence. It's going to be more. There's going to be lots of associates that are going to be caught up in this. You know, family members and the like. Um, and if, I mean, if we did a hypothetical. Um, scenario, uh, I don't know, CEO of a bank, several children, one son, for example, is a teacher, and another one is in finance. Um, is, is the teacher really going to have political influence? Is the teacher really going to present a risk? But if they're taking an automated view, that teacher might be blocked. So you think that lots of family members of so-called politicians yeah. or diplomats are being caught up in in the PEPs regime when, yeah. in fact... They, they may not actually present a risk. Yeah. Um, it's, going to be, it's going to be very interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm dying to find out what they do uncover. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know it's, a, it's a hypothetical question at the moment, but I, I suspect that's what we're going to see. Um, and... Um, I think part of the problem with, with PEPs and risk is that the banks over the years, we're, we're in a car crash scenario. The banks have been told to do certain things in a certain way. They've been told to be the gamekeeper. 
and yet they're being threatened with prosecution. Okay, so they they spot fraud. They're the first line of defense this nation has against fraud. They 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 prevent those attacks, and yet the government's threatening to prosecute them. Uh, and so that makes them more risk averse in relation to, well, we can't take a view here because we might get prosecuted. Therefore, we're going to say no. And that's a big issue. Um, well, I, I think there needs to be guidance given to banks. They're, they're, they're walking around like, you know, headless chickens at the moment, desperately trying to find a way through this without any clear guidance about what they can and they cannot do. And if they're given a rule by, by the FCA that said, look, under this circumstances, you can do X or Y, then they will probably follow that rule. Um, and I think that, you know, they may well feel relief <laughs> to have that sort of um, um, sense of direction given to them. Uh, because at the moment, they're making up decisions as they go, uh, and it's becoming more and more and more risk averse. How successful do you think the PEP regime has been, though, in preventing bribery and corruption and money laundering by high risk individuals? So since the sanctions issue and the Russian oligarchs came to light, then I think we've seen a far greater use of the PEP system. And that is now catching your regular politicians, even your Liberal Democrat MPs are finding problems getting into bank accounts. So it's gone to an extreme. And that is, I suspect, because of the lack of guidance. You know, I think the regulators being caught on the hop by all this, to be quite frank with you. And um, the regulator is probably looking for guidance as well, to be frank. You know, it needs to be told, you now need to look at this view. I welcome the FCA's review of, of, of the number of bank accounts being closed, and they're trying to get to the bottom and work out what's going on here. It's going to be fascinating to find out what they come back with, bearing in mind they only gave the banks two weeks to do it in. And it's going to be fascinating to see what, what the government, um, um, their report uncovers. And then how does that then shape things in the future? It's, it's, it's a very interesting time. So let's look ahead to the future. Jeremy, what do you think needs to happen to really turn the tide on debanking or account closures? Okay, so the big, the first big thing is we need to get fraud awareness education on the national curriculum. It needs to be standardised. It needs to be a consistent message. And I've been doing a lot of work in the background, working with uh, the National Fraud Forum, Robert Rooker, various uh, educationalists and uh, people like Wayne Denner and Professor Nick Ryder and Sam uh, Borton at University of West of England and various others to try to persuade government that this is of such national importance that a consistent education system needs to be put in place to protect people from fraud. 
we are the most fraud ridden country on earth. Um, there's a couple of reasons behind that I'll go to in a minute, but um, we have to stop the rot. And the only way of doing that is to make people more fraud aware. There's lots of people now starting to do lots of good things to educate young people, but it is not consistent and it is not compulsory. And it has to be. And it has to be driven into the national curriculum. Um, I think the second thing is that the banks actually need to investigate cases properly and they need to be forced to do that. I, I think the problem is far bigger than they are accepting or admitting. Um, so um, I know I, I looked on the uh, Financial Ombudsman Service website uh, last night. It's very difficult to work out exactly how many cases, for example, they deal with in relation to CIFAS complaints. There's two levels of appeal in the ombudsman system. They only report the final level of appeal where a final, an ombudsman makes a final decision. And over the past six years, if you key in CIFAS, they have overturned 272 cases and upheld 605 cases. Um, but that's only on a final decision. Um, there's a ream of cases below that, far, far more below that, but we are not reported. We need greater transparency. Cinetics needs to be more transparent in its systems. It needs to, banks need to be overridden. Um, they, there needs to be a uh, basis of truth. That has to be at a higher level because this is affecting people. It, this is going to impact on the wider economy as well. The banks must be able to substantiate their reasoning to criminal standard. That has to happen. So those are the two big things so far as I'm concerned. And the final big thing that needs to happen is all of this uh, is down to, or a lot of the problems are down to the fact that we have a broader, a faster payment system in the UK. And the government is absolutely right to slow things down or wants to in certain scenarios to slow those transactions down. A, to give people more time to think about what they're doing, but B, to allow the banks the time to properly investigate. Um, and that will hopefully reduce such need for greater reliance on AI and automated processes. Those are tools, they are valuable tools, but they should not be the final answer, okay? There has to be a human at the end of the process making that decision. National Hunter and uh, Cinetics, they need to step up here and they need to be much more transparent and open and operate an arbitration system themselves. Uh, you can't label people as a fraudster and deny their liberty, which is what happens when you lose your bank accounts, when you lose your home, when you lose your job, and you end up on suicide watch, as has happened to several of my clients. That is a deprivation of your liberty. And for you to do that on an automated say-so, it has to be a fair, transparent system, and it isn't at the moment but it's a bank's job to manage risk so i'm just wondering you know my final 
question to you is yeah. what tools what tools do you think the banks need to help them do their job better and we need to go back we need to take a step back in time um and and actually have that have those conversations with people uh because at the end of the day you can't go closing a million people's access to finance and banking uh, without it being fair, transparent, and without it being uh, with a with with proof that that person actually has done something wrong. At the end of the day, the banks are investing so much in automated tools, but Jeremy's message is go back to basics. So that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks for tuning into Banking in the Shadows. And special thanks to our guest, Jeremy Asher from Setfords. Thank you. Thank you, Anita. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Banking in the Shadows, a monthly podcast available from thebanker.com, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.